people think of the uh, the book of Ruth as a a love story, and it is a love story, and man, is it a love story. But uh, the question I would like to ask this morning is: Is the book of Ruth a romantic love story? So maybe to what 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 modern Americans would consider a love story. Okay, so so why don't we? Maybe to get at this a little bit, go to the Webster's Dictionary definition of romance. Y'all ready for this? Number one, I'm just going to read them in the the top three in Webster's Dictionary. Romance, love affair, fanciful story, realm of fantasy. And I look at Ruth chapter 3 and I ask, where is the romance? In this love story, Ruth goes to Boaz simply because her mother-in-law tells her to. And there's this kind of factor of the ancient world, and we're going to learn some, some, some real interesting Hebrew ways and facts this morning, but there's kind of this factor of an arranged marriage that's definitely working in this this text. Uh, she gets there, we read in verse 2, uh, freshly bathed and perfumed, wearing her best clothes. She's young, and we can only imagine that she is attractive, or at least we'd like to think so, because we're hopelessly romantic. So you got a picture of her a little bit? Okay, then there's Boaz. Uh, the text indicates that he is much older than her. In fact, he is a relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Okay, so are you all ready for some sizzling romance from, uh, from Ruth chapter 3? Here it is. She enters the threshing floor, you know, like in the barn. She enters the threshing floor, and there is old Boaz. He is sweaty and and grimy, and he's just eaten, he's got a full belly, and he's conked out on the grain pile. I can almost hear him snoring. Uh, no, he is not a Fabio. Uh, some of y'all may be too young. That, that's the guy that used to be on the cover of all. He's, Boaz ain't going to be on the cover of a Harlequin romance novel anytime soon, I assure you. So is this romantic? The setting, it's in a barn on a grain pile. I'm sure it's a romantic grain pile. So here, young, freshly bathed, meets exhausted older man with poor physical hygiene because of a day's work on the farm, who is asleep with his mouth open on the grain pile. She uncovers his feet, and the cold will wake him, she sits down next to him. I mean, I can just see Boaz. He's rooting around for cover now, you know. And he's startled and kind of half-glazed. He looks at her and he says, who are you? Oh, I'm sorry, let's do that more romantically. Who are you? <laughs> and right there and then on the grain pile, Ruth asked Boaz, to marry her <laughs> because of duty to her mother-in-law. Okay, that's really romantic, right? 
But there's more here than meets the eye, I assure you. In fact, one of our problems may be is that we tend to read the Bible through 21st century lenses. We tend to look at love relationships that are recorded in the scriptures through this kind of narrow lens of, of, uh, of, of romance. And you know what? When we look at it that way, we miss the real beauty here. And there is, there is just stunning beauty in this text. Because, folks, this is a real love story. And it leads to real deep feelings. And romance and joy, as we will see further in the book, um, this is a love story because this is made of the stuff that real love is made of. Ruth is a book about other-centered love. Ruth is a book about commitment. Ruth is a book about a kind of love that, that is a promise and the, and the carrying out of this promise. Ruth's a book about these promises and how the characters in this book are linked together by love. We tend to think of love solely in terms of, of individuals. The Bible, however, thinks of love in a very different way. The Bible thinks of love in terms of covenants, and communities, and therefore individuals. Are you interested? I mean, that's kind of a difference, isn't it? What does that mean? Well, a covenant, a covenant is simply a promise made between people that bind them together, that you, you honor that promise, you, you do what is promised, and you, you uphold your promise. And we, we learn in in Genesis chapter 12, 15, 17, and many other places, that God made covenant with us, which is really amazing because God tracked down sinners who really don't deserve a relationship with him. God initiates toward us, and God made covenant promises uh, with the nation of Israel and, and through Jesus um, also also to us. And the, the highest expression of this promise that God has made with us and his unconditional sacrificial love is the death of Jesus that just cements this relationship, this love relationship between us and God forever. But in that covenant, it is made with the people of God. We are also to love the one who pursued us and gave himself for us. And because God makes his covenant not just with an individual but with a group, we are to love one another with the love that God has given us. And this becomes something very significant in a fallen world. Jesus, in fact, said, we looked at it last week, this is how people will know that you're my disciples. This is how you'll know that you belong to my group, that you love one another. See, God is definitely focused on individuals. God definitely wants people. Please don't misunderstand me. Jesus did die for us individually, okay? But that's kind of where we stop with the story of redemption. 
it's between me and Jesus and what Jesus did for me. It's kind of that question or that thing that says, you know, if you were the only person on earth, Jesus would have still come and died for you. And it kind of has that feel that, you know, you as, it's all about you as an individual. And if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it or something like that. Because we're kind of individualistic in the way we even view the love of God. And he does love people. But more than that, the Bible lays out through covenant and fulfillment that God wants a people for himself. God wants a people for himself, and the, and the context of an individual, any individual you learn of in the Bible, is always in the larger context of a group. And so an individual is always located in the Bible in the group, and the group matters, you see. Today, this is the larger church of all those who know and love Jesus, and it is local churches where we Live and love one another in the midst of these promises and and this incredible love of Christ for us. In the text, we also learn that families are little covenant communities. So that's the other covenant aspect of, of human life. It is the church or Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, And families are little covenant communities because marriage itself is based on a what? A promise, right? Last night we had a wedding right here on this platform and there were promises made. There was a covenant made and that was beautiful. Parenting is all about commitment. And we are bound together in these little covenant communities. And so what happened, what's happening in Ruth chapter 3 really is beautiful when we take off our 21st century lenses of just individualism and romance and put on our covenantal perspective, biblical lenses. Um, it's not like the movies. It, it's not fanciful as we define romance. It's not boy meets girl. It's not Ken meets Barbie. We get the idea from the world around us that that romance, fanciful romance, is like the key to relationships. There are people who think romance is the key, I'm talking about the key to marriage. Now, I want to affirm romance before you throw rocks at me. Okay? I am, I'm affirming romance. Gina, wherever you are, did you hear that? I'm affirming this. It is good. And it is needed and for people to be made to feel special because of a focus upon them is, is very, very important. But from a biblical perspective in the whole, what you need to hear this morning is romance is more like the icing on the cake. It is not the cake. The cake, the substance of love is commitment. It is promise. It is being bound together and loving one another sacrificially according to serving one another. And romance is great, too, in a love relationship. Uh, Icing tastes great, but it's not the cake. The cake is commitment. And yet we 21st century American people are hopelessly addicted to icing. 
Have you ever noticed Hollywood's not producing movies just about covenants and commitment? We have a raging appetite for icing. We're junkies for icing. And um, we tend to first and foremost in relationships think of ourselves. And we demand icing. Love is commitment. And it is the commitment that is the soil out of which something real and beautiful and dear and really romantic, meaning not just manipulating, not just trying to get out of some doghouse or make an impression, but really an expression of love and really personally to the other person. So what I want to do is I want to look deeper into the covenant commitment here in Ruth chapter 3. And uh, I need for you to really pay attention here because we're about to learn some things about the the, the um, nation of Israel and their practices as God laid them out. And you're going to have to stick with me, all right? I can't make it be anything but what it is. And it's very interesting. So, you know, when Israel uh, finally crossed the Jordan River and, and they took over the land... Uh, when they took over the land, there was this moment where they met with God and God apportioned the, the holy land for the Israelites. Now, if you know how the Israelites are broken down, they're broken down into these, these humongous um, extended families called tribes, like the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin. Y'all with me? So these are humongous extended families. And this this moment where God apportioned the land, God actually gave, and there were boundaries, how much land each big extended family would get. And then there, was, there were parcels for individual families. And that was your land. And God was so serious about you having that land because that was your livelihood. And, and, and sustenance in those days, it was an agrarian society, that even if you lost your land or you had to sell your land, so to speak, maybe you were going bankrupt or something like that, every 50 years they had this thing called the year of jubilee. And it was a jubilee for people who lost their land because all the land would go back to the original owners every 50 years. And each family would be taken care of. You understand? God wants all the families taken care of. All right. So, when there is a son, and therefore an heir, the father's name and the father's land is passed down to the son. That's kind of the ordinary way this happens, and, and all through the, 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 the Old Testament, what we see is that the land stays in the family, and it's passed down through um, inheritance, Okay? But what if there's no son? What if a man who is the the head of the house, the, the landowner, the patriarch, so to speak, what if the patriarch dies before he has sons to pass the land down? You see the problem here? What's going to happen to that land? What's going to happen to that family? What's going to happen to that name? You know, I have two daughters, and I have a sister, and my name's like done. Okay, so I get this. 
Um, so what if the, what if the, the landowner dies before he has sons? Uh, or what if the landowner and all his sons die? That's what's going on in Ruth. You see, now, now we've got these, 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 these clauses, these, these things, these special things that need to happen because God loves little covenant communities called families and God wants to provide for a family and we have got Elimelech and Machlon and Kilion and they go out to live in, in, um, Moab and Elimelech dies and Machlon dies and Kilion dies and Naomi, Elimelech's husband, is left with no children. All she's left with are two Moabite daughters-in-law. One of them, Orpah, goes back to uh, Moab. And the other, Ruth, comes back with her to Israel. And they're destitute. So they're destitute. And, and, and this is what happened to Naomi. And so I'm going to introduce two words to you. I tell you, y'all are doing great with this. I can tell on your faces. Good job. Um, I'm going to introduce two words to you. That are wonderful words, and they are the words goel, that's the first one, goel, and the second one is levir. All right, goel and levir. So they're destitute, and they desperately need a goel. And it would be really great if in addition to a goel, they could get a levir. Now let me help you understand what I just said, okay? They need a goel. A goel in these situations, was a near relative who would take the responsibility to just buy back the land of the relative and give it to the sons if they were alive. Just restore that land. All right? The word goel means to redeem. It means to buy back. And and this is going to happen. Land's going to be bought back and given back to a family here in the, the book of Ruth before everybody lives happily ever after. Um, and so they need a goel to get their land back, right? But, you know, really what they need is a goel who is also a levir. And a levir typically was the brother of the deceased or a near relative of the deceased, and he would not only buy back the land and restore this land to the family, he would marry the widow. Okay, so that's just bumping up the commitment a little bit. It's not just giving back property. He marries the widow, and he, they have children, and the, the name, the, 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 the family name of the ch- child, you ready for this, will not be his name. If they have a son, that family name will be, in this case, the name of Elimelech. So the original family has their land back, and there is a son, and we're all back to where we were just the way God in this covenant love and his love for families wants it to be. So they need a goel to get their land back. They're destitute. And boy, if they could, if that goel could be a levir at the same time and marry Ruth and take care of Naomi and Ruth the rest of their lives, um, et cetera, that would be great. So you, you, you tracking with me? Goel and levir. Okay. Here's the point. Ruth did not go down to the threshing floor just looking for romantic love that night. You understanding this now? She's not just looking for romantic love. 
she wasn't even doing this for herself as much as she was doing it out of commitment for Naomi, her mother-in-law, and the name and property of her father-in-law, Elimelech. She went to ask Boaz to be her goel. But she went further and asked Boaz to be her levir. He was single. And to marry her and to take care of she and Naomi and perpetuate the name of the family of Elimelech. And, and I'm sure she went down to the threshing floor that night with, with, with great hopes for a brighter future. Right? And we'd like to think that she thought Boaz was cute. Okay, so there, there it is. That's the structure of this relationship. Now, you and I can't imagine stuff like this. We're not going to be told who to love. We're going to be told to go down and make some covenant with somebody to save the family. And then, you know, that's just, that's just like not even in our universe of thoughts. All kind of arranged by Naomi. And I know we're just getting back to Ruth before Advent, but he, she says right before, she says, and I think he's a uh, near relative. And here we are. So let me read verse 7, 8, and 9 about just from the scriptures about what happened that night at the, at the grain pile, okay? Then she came softly. This is chapter 3, verse 7. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman was sitting at his feet. Verse 9. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. And listen to what Ruth said. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now you understand what that means. Take me in. Be a goel. Be a levir. Now, you and I might say, how unromantic. How unromantic. And you do know most all marriages, I, I mean, I can't think of any, uh, very few that we would, I, I'd have to study it. Marriages were arranged back then is what I'm trying to say. Uh, Gene and I are willing to arrange with a couple of families in the church. Uh, it's not based on romance. It's not based on, like, I dig you, let's get married. I mean... How in the world did those marriages survive? <laughs> I went to India about seven or eight years ago, and uh, I landed. James Griffin and I went together, and we landed um, in Chennai in South India at about 3 a.m., and we were exhausted. And, and our host, Paul Billy Arnold, who is an, is an Indian Interestingly, named after the Apostle Paul and Billy Graham. Um, he picked us up in, in like this Indian version of a Land Rover. And uh, 
the, the things I remember as we were kind of speeding down this road from the airport, I, I remember, number one, that he didn't stop at stop signs. And I, and I was getting really nervous. And I said, excuse me, Paul Billy, in America, those little signs mean you have to stop. He goes, well, in India, they don't. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm in for a wild ride. <laughs> I'm not sure if they do or don't, by the way. So we're riding down the road, and um, he mentioned something. I don't remember how it came up, but we're talking about the, the customs of India. He was, like, briefing us on some things, you know. And um, I said, now, I know in the history of India, most marriages over time have been arranged. I said, now, that's not quite as true as it used to be, is it? And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, most of them are still arranged. And I got quiet. He goes, I know what you're thinking. You're an American. I'm like, I am so busted by this, y'all. I said, what am I thinking, Paul Billy? You're thinking. Oh, no. Then he said, my marriage was arranged. And I really got quiet. He said, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, did I love my wife? I said, yes, I am thinking that. And he said, well, um, I didn't really know her when we got married. We'd only spent 20 minutes together uh, under the gaze of, of, of very interested parents watching us spend 20 minutes together. Um, but I tell you, Joseph, about two years into the marriage, I just realized how desperately I loved my wife. And then he looked at me and he said, um, so, Joseph... What's the divorce rate in your country like? I mean, he knew the answer to the question. I said, well, it's about 50, 50, 50. And he goes, it hardly even exists here. He said, before you judge my culture, I'm like, okay, I get it. Now, I say to all of you, but I say especially to the young people here, that feelings of love are definitely important. You need to marry somebody you want to be with. You need, you need to marry someone that, that you um, do dig. <laughs> but feelings alone cannot be the basis of a marriage. Because they're fluid, right? You can't have a basis for something that's not stable. They're fluid. I remember uh, J.I. Packer taught my Puritan theology course in seminary way back in the mid-80s. And um, he was talking about family life and the Puritans, which was very interesting. And he said, you know, uh, and there were several of us who are single in the class. He said, you know, the, the Puritans have very specific advice about who you should marry. Are y'all interested? We said, yeah, we're interested. What, what do the Puritans say about this? And I'll read to you um, the quote, which also is in the book. That whole class is now in a book called The Quest for Godliness um, about the Puritans by J.I. Packer. If you want to read it, it's called The Quest for, the God, for Godliness. And you can see this quote. The Puritans said this, don't just marry the one you love. Now, that's just kind of different. Don't just marry the one you love. Do, but not just that. Marry the one you can see yourself loving for a lifetime. 
In other words, the Puritans kind of got this covenant nature of marriage. And yeah, we, we want to marry the one we love. But, but it's that one we want to love forever. It's the one that we, we just can see ourselves growing older with. And, and loving for a lifetime. That is still great advice that the Puritans give. Marry into the cake. Not the icing. And if you marry into the cake, and if you love with all your heart, there is a good chance that there will be icing. That's the point. So Ruth goes to the threshing floor, and she asks Boaz to be her goel, and he wants to do it all for her. He wants to be her goel, the redeemer, the buyer, backer, and he wants to be her levier to marry and, and take care of she and Naomi, she goes to him because he cannot know her desires unless she initiates. Okay, you're like, she asked him to marry her. Well, you know, he won't know that this, this younger woman, he won't know that this younger woman would be willing to do that unless she reveals this to him. She goes humbly at night, not publicly in front of everyone, uh, does not make a demand, hey, you're a near relative, you know, you owe this to me. He does it in case, she does it in case it doesn't work out, that he will be spared humiliation of any type, and that she will be spared humiliation as well. And she simply asks, and he says, yes. There, like, it's a go for Goel and Levere. And we are delighted as we read this text. I'm about to read some more to you. We're delighted that he is genuinely honored and happy about this. He noticed her. And we, we, we saw that in the, the passages going up to, to chapter 3. He noticed her. She is a young woman known for her faith and virtue. He's surprised, actually, that she would want to marry him. She calls it, he calls it a mercy that she would want to marry him. A lot of us husbands feel that way, right? It was a mercy. And here's, here's what it says from the actual text. Luke 3, 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, younger woman, because, because you have made this last kindness rather than mercy in this text. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after the younger men, whether they be rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do all that you ask me, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So this is turning out pretty good, right? But there's a problem. There's a problem. Boaz is not the nearest kinsman to Naomi and therefore Ruth. There's someone else who has the first right of refusal, so to speak, for this same relationship of Goel, at least, if not Levere. 
Boaz promises to deal directly with the closer relative in hopes that the closer relative will say pass and he can joyfully marry Ruth. And then Boaz gives her some grain and sends her away without being discovered. He's already providing for her. He is already protecting her honor. Verse 11. Hear it from the text. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. And yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. I'm out. The other guy has the right. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Stay here until morning. And so she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before anyone would recognize recognize her. And she said, and he said, let it not be known that a woman came to this threshing floor last night. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing, hold it out. And she held it out and he measured six measures. I'm talking about big measures. Six measures of barley and put it uh, in her, the little pouch that she made. And she went into the city. We get to uh, be a part next week of the moment where she goes and Naomi and they get to like giggle and jump around and and say, it's happening, you know. Okay, I know, let me kind of move to a conclusion here. I know, yes, I know that this is not a, this is not a candlelit dinner where people look at each other in eyes and, and, you know, there's just all this, you know, these feelings swirling. I know that. But it was a, an expression of, of real commitment and love in the structure of covenant and the willingness to follow through and desire. And we, we kind of see that on his part and, and on her part because she actually came with the question. And later in this book, we are going to see this love blossom. We're going to see children. We're going to see joy. And, and there's so much joy in this marriage and with these children that the whole town's talking about. How blessed they are. In fact, we get the picture from here on out in the book of Ruth that this is a notoriously happy marriage. And it's a marriage fondly remembered to this day because we're talking about it in January 2017. Marriage by covenant, promise, commitment, living for the good of the other Not just for ourselves, it is the cake, it is the soil out of which real love, not to manipulate, not to get something, but because something is dear, beautiful, meaningful, real love and real romance can bloom. Within covenant love, the icing can be thoroughly enjoyed. Isn't that wonderful? But the book of Ruth is not just about this redemption of the Goel Levere. It's about a greater redemption, and we're definitely going to see this at the very end of the book. And I won't give everything away here, but for now, let's just put it this way as we close. Jesus Christ 
is our Goel. He is our Redeemer. He left heaven to come and pay the price, which is what redemption means. To come and pay the price for us to be with him. He gave us a family name. Jesus is our Goel that loved his church so much that he died for us. But you know, Jesus also rose from the dead on the third day, and he lives and he reigns. And as the living, risen Christ, Jesus is also our Levir. He is known as not only the one who purchased us, but the one who is and always will be our bridegroom, our husband who loves us. And, 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 and will always tenderly love us, care for us, never leave us. We need to understand that Jesus did not fall in love with you as a sinner. In fact, we are sinners in rebellion against God. We are repugnant to God. Jesus didn't come because he fell in love with you. It wasn't about romance. Jesus came because he loved you, in spite of you, and in spite of me. This relationship is born out of a willing sacrifice for to, re, to save his people from their sins. But through this sacrifice, and by faith in him, we become his And we gain a love that is greater than all loves, that secures us, that fills our hearts like no other love has the ability. And we will one day be with him forever in eternal love and bliss. And we will be the real happily ever after. With our Goel, who is our Levere, who we can always count on, who also passionately, passionately loves you. Let's pray. Lord, wow, what a, uh, what a lot of information. But God, thank you that we can go back into the world of Old Testament Israel. And we can understand covenant and we can understand Goel and Levere. We can see these poor destitute women without any hope. And how you provided all that was needed and more and joy. Lord, first of all, would you help us to see that your love is a covenant love, a sacrificial love. And for that reason, we can count on it. It wasn't just because you had a feeling that could come or go. But you did this for us and it's finished. We thank you for that. Would you give us security because of your love received by faith? And Lord, would you also help us as hopefully icing addicted 21st century people to reformat the reality of love? in our minds and hearts. But more importantly, Lord, would you reformat it in our life and teach us how to love. Lord, I pray for the marriages here in this church and beyond.
Lord, that marriages would not exist on mutual meeting of demands, but would exist on mutual sacrificial love within a covenant of your sacrificial love and that you would produce feelings of rest, peace, security, joy, closeness, and romance. And Lord, would you bless our younger people and would you cause them only to marry believers in Christ? And would you raise up notoriously wonderful marriages in the next generation and the generations to come as your covenant rolls. We thank you for our fellowship and for our families. In Jesus' name, amen.